let me spend a couple of minutes introducing Professor Yongjin Zhang. Um, it, it really is a great pleasure to introduce him. I have known him a very long time, and we've been reminiscing a bit, um, because uh, way back, actually, he completed the MPhil and DPhil in international relations here. And when I arrived in Oxford, there was uh, Yongjin, and we had many a meal together in uh, St. Anthony's dining hall. Um, he went on from there to be a junior research fellow, I think, at Wolfson College, and then came back to St. Anthony's at a later date as an academic visitor. Um, his teaching life has taken him around the world. He's uh, taught in New Zealand, in, back in China, in Australia, um, and then became, um, eventually became professor of international politics at the University of, of Bristol. Um, he's uh, also uh, the recipient of a Leverhulme Senior uh, Research Fellowship, which has given him a couple of years leave from teaching uh, and, and, and during which he's undertaken a number of projects, one of which, the fruits of which we will hear about tonight. Um, he is author of numerous books and articles, um, and I would say an underlying theme of these books and articles has been China's engagement with or alienation from international society. Um, his current main research project looks at international relations in ancient China. Um, and this, in the, again, is a long-standing interest of um, Yongjin's, which is to think about China's past and the way in which it influences, shapes its attitude to current international relations. Uh, the topic today is, as you know, China rising in a world not of its own making. And this topic is explored in even greater depth in the July 2016 issue of the journal called International Affairs. There are several articles in there that Professor Zhang edited a collection of pieces. Um, a number of them are by Chinese scholars, which adds to our understanding greatly, I think. Um, but his own piece in there will form the basis of the talk that he's going to give us uh, tonight. He's also talked about this, um, uh, he's also given presentations on this topic in China itself. And again, it would be interesting to think about uh, the way you react in the Oxford setting here compared with some of the experiences that he had when he gave his paper in uh, Shanghai. So um, I warmly welcome Professor Zhang and uh, look forward to hearing uh, your presentation. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, thanks very much, uh, Rosemary, for the invitation uh, to come home, almost, uh, to give this, this talk, obviously. Um, uh, as Rosemary said, um, about 30 years ago, um, I was a student here. Uh, when I finished uh, my MPhil in 1986, exactly 30 years ago, um, China studies uh, were very different, obviously, from what we know and we see China studies at Oxford. Uh, if I can share one, probably, of uh, my experience with you, and it's at the time, uh, it was very difficult to find a supervisor for me uh, who actually know or knew anything about Chinese international relations. Um, so things, of course, are very 
different today. Now, one other difference, of course, is that China today is, is very different from 30 years ago. In 1986, uh, China mattered very little, uh, if you like, uh, in uh, what we call international relations. In contrast, of course, um, China today uh, matters a lot. And, and probably no one could have imagined back in 1986, in 30 years' time, we are going to have a lot of debates about China and about power transition and about, of course, the future of international order. Now, as a result, largely, of the rise of China as what I call a non-Western, non-democratic, and dissatisfied non-status quo power. So a lot of debates, and some of you here, obviously, are also engaged, at least are excited about. Um, let me single out just two among those debates, one of which I will discuss in more details in my presentation today. Now, one of them, of course, uh, is in the realist favored power transition scenario. That is obviously more about a contest for primacy or supremacy, either globally or regionally between the United States and China now as hegemonic rivals. That would not be my main concern today. My concern today is more of a liberal concern. That is, China as a rising non-democratic and to some extent illiberal power, inimical to liberal values, will inevitably contest or even try to dismantle the liberal global order. Now, this concern is unmistakable even in the more nuanced arguments provided by, for example, John Eikenberry. In two questions he posed uh, very anxiously back in 2008. Now, one is in the title of the article, Can the Liberal System Survive the Rise of China? The second one he actually posed in the content of that article is whether the expensive liberal institutions will be sufficiently resilient to shape, to constrain, but also accommodate the rise of China. Now let me come back to the topic of today, which is whether China is contesting liberal global order. Now I think there are three problems in the claim that China, a rising China, a non-democratic, a rising China uh, governed by an authoritarian regime poses a threat to liberal global order. Now, the three problems. The first one, it, it fails to appreciate that the rise of China has in very significant ways reinforced rather than undermined certain aspects of this very global order that we see today. Now, there is a cruel irony in global political economy today. That is, as the Chinese economy has become an integral part of global capitalist economic order, 
the Chinese Communist Party has become indispensable and instrumental in the continued success of global capitalism. Can you imagine the collapse of Chinese economy today? Now, what would be the implications of that for the global capitalism? The second problem is this kind of claim mischaracterizes crudely the rising, Chi uh, rising China's global order preferences and overlook the contentious politics entails in China's entanglement with liberal institutions in the existing global order. And this one I will elaborate uh, later in my talk. The third problem is this kind of claim treats both the theory and the practice of the liberal global ordering as analytically unproblematic and largely static, thus hindering an adequate understanding of the evolving liberal global order with its own inherent tensions and contradictions. So that are the problems that I see in this kind of claims. But what is the prevailing international order anyway within which China is <coughs> rising? Now again, the emphasis here is that China is rising within this particular order. Now again, let me offer four comments on this particular order. First, the prevailing international order that we see today has been and is still a liberal global order shaped, sustained, and dominated by the hegemonic power of the United States. Second, this one world of globalizing capitalism, of global security dynamics, of global institutions and global governance is until very recently not of China's own making. Now, back in 1948, the People's Republic of China was not, uh, 45, sorry, uh, back in 1945, when the Bretton Woods uh, system or institutions were put in place, uh, People's Republic of China was not even in existence. As many of you know, China was not in the United Nations, a PRC was not in the United Nations until 1971, and China was not part of IMF, World Bank until 1980, and certainly not a WTO until 2001. Now, China has been said very often still as mostly a rule taker, not rule maker in international relations. Now, the third comment really is China's rise within this order has happened at a time when latest liberal ascendancy has propelled the West and liberal capitalist system of economics and politics to world preeminence. This is mostly referred to the post-Cold War period. And the final comment is really to look at global power structure at the present historical juncture. The power structure has a unique configuration in two particular ways. One is this uh, unique configuration is found in the unprecedented concentration of power of a specific formation with what I call the vanishing unipolarity. And secondly, and this has a lot to do with our uh, discussion today, 
the arrival of China, a non-Western, again I emphasize, a non-democratic power ruled by an authoritarian regime, as the second among great power equals, arguably with its purpose and project. Now, if you look at China today and look at the prevailing international order that I actually have commented on, and China finds itself occupying an anonymous position, an impossible position, in the liberal order of capitalist system of economics vis-a-vis -vis the liberal democratic system of politics. Why it is anonymous, it's impossible. On the one hand, China has become an integral part of the former, which is the liberal order of capitalist system of economics. On the other hand, China is the significant other in the later, which is the liberal democratic system of politics. So what is the key argument that I'm going to make today? Now really, to put it simply, China as a rising non-democratic power has been at once defending, contesting, and also negotiating with the prevailing liberal global order in a historically contingent social world in pursuit of its peaceful rights and in navigating normative change in global international society. So that is really the key argument that I'm going to make today. Now to advance this argument, I propose to look at three engagement that China, or entanglement rather, uh, with three uh, social and institutional constructs of the, what we call liberal hierarchies in global international society today. Now, if I can very briefly just go through them, they are namely the legalized hegemony embodying the classical liberal pluralism based on the UN Charter. Secondly, the changing normative order of an emerging cosmopolitan anti-pluralist formation with its deliberate creation of unequal sovereigns. And thirdly, the liberal global governance order, which calls for leadership of great powers and uh, special responsibilities of great powers. Now, what I'm trying to do is to really examine what I call the interactive dynamics of China's complex entanglement and in engagement with liberal global order, and the agency that China has exercised in influencing the changing reasoned system of global international society. It also treats liberal global order as dynamically evolving with its own inherent tensions and contradictions informed by contending liberalisms. The liberal global order, in other words, is not unproblematic itself. The three aspects, let me come to the first one, China and legalized hegemony at the United Nations Security Council. The first, what is what we call legalized hegemony? Now, legalized hegemony refers to the existence of a powerful elite of states within international society whose existence is recognized by other states as a political fact. Given rise to the existence of certain constitutional rights, privileges, 
and duties of those states, which entails what we call, or sometimes call, collective hegemony or collective responsibility. Now, it is called legalized hegemony because it is enshrined in international law. Uh, sometimes it is also called great power club or great power directorate. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the contemporary expression of legalized hegemony is in the United Nations Security Council, the so-called P5. But this, the existence of legalized hegemony can also be traced back to the Congress of Vienna and also to the League of Nations. Now, it is very often probably convenient to forgotten that the UN system is one culminating product of the so-called Westphalian project. And this is a pluralist international order informed by classical liberalism of tolerance and diversity seen in the principles of legal sovereignty, sovereign equality, self-determination, and non-interference. Now, legalized hegemony gives P5 a central ordering role, ordering role in the collective security system of the UN. Like the other members of P5, China now enjoys not only a socially recognized and accepted great power status, but also special privileges, rights, and responsibilities associated with legalized hegemony at the UNSC. It is from this position that we can see, a position at top of the power hierarchy, that we see China mounting a vigorous defense of the charter-based pluralist order as normatively sensible, morally defensible, and politically viable. This is at the moment when the Westphalian project as a central normative structure of international order is under relentless assault and is seen as morally failing. And when the American support of the UN has become increasingly erratic and contingent. Now, if we look at China's defense of the charter-based order, there are two particular strands that we can look at. One is China's defending of principles of sovereign equality, non-interference, self-determination enshrined in the UN Charter as constituting the foundation of the international legal order. The charter-based order, if you read the Chinese uh, official rhetoric, China insists is not outdated, as some claim, but not properly upheld. The second line of defense is really to defend the legitimacy on, and authority of UNSC as the only institution to authorize and to legitimate the use of coercive force. Now, this is in part, uh, particularly uh, during the Iraqi war and uh, the war in Afghanistan, in part aimed at countering American unilateralism and constraining the unbridled exercise of US military power. But let me just move on to look at second aspect when China fiercely contests a liberal global, uh, uh, liberal institutional and social construct. 
And this is China in the new liberal internationalist order of unequal sovereigns. Now here, again, let me make uh, three comments on what we call uh, the new, um, what I call the new uh, liberal internationalist order of unequal sovereigns. First, uh, following the democratic peace theory, new international, uh, uh, new liberal internationalism divides the world into a liberal zone of law, order, and justice, and non-liberal zone of violence injustice and chaos. Such division is seen not just as an emerging reality, but as a morally defensible proposition that justifies and legitimates an extraordinary range of interventionist and intrusive and otherwise coercive activities in the non-liberal zones. Expanding the zone of liberal peace necessit necessitates engaging in the morally virtuous war for example, as a necessary evil. Now, the advance and retreat of what we sometimes call the assertive liberalism in the war of Iraq is a primary example. Second, new liberal internationalism also mandates, I quote, mandates a distinction among different types of states based on their domestic political structure and ideology. They divide those states into, again, I quote, decent and indecent states, which should have different rights, thus creating more inequality among states. Third, in contravention to classical liberalism as embodied in the UN Charter, new liberal internationalists work to establish new forms of international outlawry to be punished and to create what it is, it, it calls a concert of democracies as an exclusivist core of international society with special rights surrounded by outer and then peripheral circles of non-democracies and illiberal states to be disciplines, disciplined or democratized. Now this is a quote, a very interesting quote from Michael Doyle. Liberals do not only distrust what they do, the non-democratic states, what they do, we dislike what they are. Fourth, new liberal internationalists attempt to establish democracy and human rights as a new standard of civilization and seek to reintroduce the criteria of legitimate statehood in justifying such claims as conditional sovereignty, contingent sovereignty, and qualifying sovereignty. This is a kind of attempt to create what we sometimes call postmodern barbarian states in the 21st century. Now, in this so-called cosmopolitan anti-pluralist formation of an international order of unequal sovereigns, China is undoubtedly ranked very low in this liberal hierarchy. It is one of those states that needs to be democratized and disciplined from time to time. That is to say, China needs to be civilized. Now, this particular liberal institutional hierarchy also has 
put a big question mark on the legitimacy of China's rising power. That is to say, China as rising power has a big legitimacy deficit because of its domestic political system. Now, how have China contested this kind of uh, new liberal cosmopolitan uh, order of unequal sovereigns? Now, obviously, as I mentioned, defense, defending the char UN Charter-based uh, Charter pluralist order mentioned earlier is one particular contestation. There are two other contestations I would like to mention here. One is China's human rights diplomacy, which is a very long story. I just want to mention one uh, particular aspect of this human rights diplomacy, which is the ratification and signing and ratification of a number of global human rights instruments and treaties, particularly in the 1990s. And the most important are the international uh, covenant of political and civil, uh, civil and political rights that China signed in 1998, uh, not yet ratified. The other is the International Covenant of Economic, Social and Cultural Rights that China signed in 1997 and ratified in 2001. And it's also very interesting to look at how uh, human rights has been written uh, in the 2004 amendment of Chinese constitution which obviously over there asserts the state, Chinese state, respects and preserves human rights. Now this is probably uh, sort of arguable. But the other most interesting contestation I want to mention is really the idea of harmonious world that have been articulated particularly by Hu Jintao in September 2005 at the United Nations. Now many have probably taken this as more or less a kind of PR exercise of propaganda. But let me quote uh, Hu Jintao uh, uh, and then look at the background and how, why this is articulated uh, by him in uh, the, UN's, uh, the United Nations in September 2005. Now, I quote, we should do away with misgivings and estrangement existing between civilizations, uh, unquote. And this is because it is civilizational differences that allow civilizations, I quote, to learn from one another and grow stronger together. Uniformity, if imposed on them, can only take away their vitality and cause them become rigid and decline, unquote. Who also contended, again, I quote, the world's civilizations may differ in age, but none is better and more superior than others. Differences in history, culture, social system, a mode of development should not become barriers to exchange between countries, let alone excuses for confrontation." Unquote. Now, this would be unremarkable if it had not been articulated against a particular background. Now, this background is the ongoing Princeton project completed in late 2006. Now this is claimed to be the contemporary X article, which calls for the formation of a global concert of democracies as an alternative institution to authorize collective action, including the use of force, and for sustaining the military predominance of liberal democracies. Now the third aspect, let me move on to, 
And China is second among great power equals in global governance order. Now again, let me uh, refer to my earlier comment on China uh, was not uh, present at the creation of the key global economic institutions such as IMF and World Bank in general, the Bretton Woods system. Until very recently, as I mentioned, China has always been a rule or norm taker rather than a rule or norm maker in expanding institutional networks for global governance. But China was present at the creation and can claim equal historical ownership of the construction of G20 and also of global environmental governance architecture, ranging from the Kyoto Protocol to the most recent uh, Paris Climate Change Agreement. Now, given this picture, it's still fair to say that until very recently, China remains as an object, not a subject, of global governance. Yes, China has participated in some global institutions, but some Chinese claim, I think it's very interesting claim, that China, uh, in global governance, China has been uh, governed, uh, in their words, uh, uh, global governance, and China has been uh, governed or been global governanced rather than actively uh, making the difference to global governance. Now, it is also true there has been widespread skepticism, distrust, and ambivalence uh, among many Chinese academics, think tank officials, as well as uh, think tank uh, uh, intellectuals, as well as officials, uh, about global governance as institutional traps to compel China to take up responsibilities greater than its capacities allow and thus intentionally retard China's rise. It is also true that Chinese, Chinese diplomacy, for example, has from time to time uh, tried to disrupting, tried to challenging various global governance arrangements, for example, COP15. It is also true, uh, until very recently at least, that China has under-participated and under-contributed to global governance even compared with other emerging powers. Now, to a large extent, China has been, in, in global governance, one of the great irresponsibles, if you like. There are some very interesting changes in the last two years, uh, particularly in 2015 and 2016. Now, let me give you three examples. Uh, the most, most recent change, I think, is probably a change of heart rather than a change in mind. Now, first, in global security governance, and particularly China uh, as a global security provider in the instance of UN peacekeeping. Though, again, um, even given China's continued ambivalence about humanitarian intervention. China is now the biggest troop contributor to UN peacekeeping operations in all, certainly uh, among all uh, P5 states. 
And China has pledged to provide 8,000 troops for the UN peacekeeping standby force of 40,000 strong. So it's about one-fifth of the UN peacekeeping stand force is likely to come from China. That is, pledge was made in 2015. The second one, again, uh, about UN peacekeeping, China has also significantly increased its financial contribution to UN, UN peacekeeping, projected to replace Japan, for example, to become the second largest funder for the UN peacekeeping operation after only the United States in 2016. Now, the second example uh, of this changing heart, China's changing heart about uh, security, uh, about global governance, is really uh, the Paris Climate Change Agreement, held as, this is from Guardian, the world's greatest diplomatic success. Now, if that is true, then we can look at the instrumental role of G2, which is United States and China, uh, in taking the leadership and the special responsibilities for climate change in order to facilitate uh, the Paris, Peace, uh, Paris Agreement. Now, this is what Obama said most recently uh, in September 2016. I quote, where there is a will, there is a vision, and where countries like China and the United States are prepared to show leadership, to lead by example, it is possible for us to create a world that is more secure, more prosperous, and more free than the one that was left for us. So this is uh, kind of uh, how important the instrumental role of G2 in taking responsibility, special responsibilities and also leadership. The Paris, Paris Agreement, it seems to me at least, also means that China has taken a big step towards accepting what Robert Faulkner calls, I quote, responsibility for the planet as one of several moral claims on the state. Now the third aspect of China and global governance order is China's embracing G20 as the premium platform for the construction and reform of global economic governance institutions. Now, if you look at uh, the most recent uh, uh, Hangzhou G20 uh, recently completed, over there uh, can see how, uh, in terms of China creatively using its pres uh, presence, presidency in setting the agenda for the summit, in humming, uh, hammering out the so-called Hangzhou Consensus, and in contributing uh, the Chinese very uh, proudly claim the China wisdom to the success of the summit. Now, regardless of those claims that China has made, Hangzhou G20 exemplifies China's approach to the proposed reform of global governance institutions. Now, this is what Xi, uh, Xi Jinping, has articulated uh, in 2015. That is, reform of global economic institutions, I quote, is not about dismantling the existing system or creating new ones to replace it. Rather, it aims to improve the global governance system in an innovative way. Now, I should also refer to two 
uh, very unusual collective study sessions of the Chinese Communist Party Politburo uh, in October 2015 and again in September 2016. Now those two Politburo collective study sessions were actually devoted to the discussion of global governance and how China should be involved, or why and how China should be involved in global, in global governance. Now, it is reported in the um, People's Daily, very unusually, I quote, China's comprehensive participation in global governance institutions and processes has since 2015 become a consensus and collective will of the top leadership of Chinese Communist Party and Chinese government. It's a very unusual claim made by People's Daily. So this is what I mean. Maybe there was some kind of changing heart uh, on the part of China in regard to global governance. So in some way, there was some kind of instrumental reasoning and normative commitment. The convergence of those two uh, in pushing China towards accepting uh, its special responsibilities in global governance. But China's approach to global governance issues has also very interesting uh, can readings, not only uh, because of instrumental reasoning, the meeting of instrumental reasoning and normative commitment, but also uh, very interestingly over there, uh, if you look at Chinese diplomacy at UNSC, G20, and Paris Climate Change Agreement, China prefers what we call, uh, or we can call, uh, essentially hierarchical and exclusionary and power-centered forum to negotiate a consensual state-centric approach to constructing liberal global governance architecture. Over there, there is no role for global civil society, very little role for transnational organizations. It's all many state-centric approach. Um, for constructing this liberal global governance order. Now, let me just make uh, very brief concluding remarks. Now, as I mentioned at the very beginning, China has arrived as second among great power equals with its purpose, project, and global order preferences. The transformative logic of China rising is playing out as much in the power transition which really are most interesting, as in negotiating and navigating for normative change in global international society. The challenge now is as much how China should work with the liberal global order as how liberal global order can work with China. Thank you. <laughs>